Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, friends. Today's guest is Ian Eagle. Ian Eagle, you've heard his voice. If you like sports at all, which you probably do if you're listening to this podcast, uh, I have some other interests too, but I would think you like sports. Ian's great. Ian has been calling Nets games for nearly a quarter century. It trips him out. We had that discussion about just kind of the passage of time. And he was a kid at Syracuse who was ambitious and wanted to go into broadcasting. And now he's been 24 years a broadcaster with the Nets, award-winning broadcaster. He's absolutely terrific. Uh, NFL, boxing, tennis, college basketball, you name it. He's all over the place. And he's really good. He called that Jags-Steelers uh, game over the weekend, uh, by the way. Duval! Shout out Tony Khan and the Jacksonville Jaguars, who are now in the uh, conference uh, championship, the AFC championship game. That's pretty exciting. Um, I don't, I can't say that I'm that huge of an overall NFL fan anymore. Uh, but if I have avidity, it is for the Jags uh, because of Tony and uh, and those folks. So I wish them all the best. That's cool. Anyway, so Ian talked about that game. He talked about calling Nets games for 24 years. Man, Nets history is so fun. We went over just the coaches in the last 24 years. It's trippy. Like Chuck Daly, uh, may rest in peace. He was the coach right when Ian was coming in as kind of doing background stuff. And then he left, and it's like Butch Beard and John Calipari and Byron Scott and Jason Kidd. And uh, Calipari stories are great. He's got some Bill Raffery stories, which are amazing, uh, really cool. He talks also about um, his work now with Sarah Kustok. Sarah is the color commentator for the Nets. She was the sideline reporter for five years and one of the few color commentators of any uh, major North American Big Four sport. Um, and does a great job of it as well. So we got into that relationship. Re- really, really good stuff. He, he's a personable guy, affable, funny, uh, really, really cool. I'd never met him. I'd never talked to him before, but Eric Handler, shout out to Eric, uh, from the Yes Network, just pitched. He just, and this is, uh, please pitch me, by the way. If you have a good guest, you could go through my website, email me anytime. No problem. Uh, I'd love to hear it because I'm always looking for good ideas. And Eric said, Hey, who do you want from the Yes Network who does Nets games? And the, you know, Zara the Telestrator, Mike Fratello, and Sarah, and so forth. And I was like, Oh, these are all great, but God, I an eagle. Like, that's a guy. That's a guy whose work I've followed my whole adult life. And uh, it's great. And uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you do too. So there's that. Hey, we have a sponsor this week. And that sponsor is a first time sponsor of the Joe Carey podcast. It is Zip Recruiter. ZipRecruiter posts your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, and then they actively look for the most qualified candidates and invite them to apply. It is a pain in the butt if you are an employer to find good talent because it is. You know, sometimes there's not enough talent. Sometimes there's just a fierce competition and somebody else is going to get the jump on you. You know, that's how it goes, and I've seen it both ways. I have friends who run companies and I have friends who are looking for jobs, and this stuff just happens all the time. You see it all the time. ZipRecruiter's great. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. One day! For reals. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. So, find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right. Listeners of the Jonah Carey Podcast can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah, J-O-N-A-H. You should already know that. And they will get the ability to post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. And one more time, we'll do it anyway. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. Post your jobs for free. 
And there you go. Thank you to ZipRecruiter for sponsoring the podcast. I hope it's the start of a long and fruitful relationship. Speaking of long and fruitful relationships, I love you all. I say it all the time. You're great. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It's with Ian Eagle. It's one of my favorites. I really, really like this. It has jumped into one of my favorites ever. I like Ian. I super want to be friends with him now. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you. Here he is, just off of calling a tremendous NFL game over the weekend. Duval emerged on top, the Jacksonville Jaguars over the Pittsburgh Steelers. He is also the voice of the Brooklyn Nets for the last, gosh, almost a quarter century now. College basketball, boxing, you name it. Swiss Army Knife, award-winning broadcaster, Ian Eagle. Ian, how's it going? Hey, Jonah, good to talk to you, man. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you as well. This is my first time, and I, I can think of so many AFC games. And just hearing the and the and just like the, the inflection when it goes up one level. And right before we right before we <laughs> yeah. got on air, yeah, the inflection is great. And right before we got on air, we were talking about the idea of what if you could curse during broadcasts? What if you could do that? That there's just some plays, you know, you call the Jack Steelers game, but what if you were calling the Stephon Diggs play? How could you not curse? How do you say, wow, great catch by Diggs, he went in the end zone? Like, it, it was, it's obviously the type of thing where you just lose your mind. And if the FCC didn't exist, I feel like things would be very different and broadcasters would not, maybe they'd have different reputations than they do right now. Yeah. You know, ESPN has created this whole other secondary channel on their national champion broadcast and i i think they get viewers because there's a little intrigue of all right what's going on what are these coaches talking about what are these personalities discussing now for the most part i think the majority of viewers want to see the traditional coverage that's what they're accustomed to that's what they're used to but if you were to tell me that during the nfl playoffs there was a separate channel where you could say anything and your honest sincere genuine reactions as a play-by-play guy could be used in those moments I guarantee you there would be viewership. There would absolutely be people that would tune in just for that, just to hear Joe Buck completely lose it and start cursing for the 20-second duration of that call. That that really was one of the most unimaginable things I've I've ever seen happen in my life at a sporting event. And and Jonah, I think when history uh, looks back on this, it it's going to be remembered. As a Buckner esque moment, it, right? it is, yeah, because it, it, it has that theme. It took such a colossal mistake and error for that play to take place. We're going to remember Minnesota winning, just like we'll remember the Mets beating the Red Sox. And remember, yeah. the Mets had to do it again. That wasn't Game Seven; that was Game Six. Minnesota has to has to back it up with something. And if they do, if they actually win this thing on their home field in their home stadium and win the Super Bowl. Uh, it's going to go down as as one of the most indelible moments in sports history. And it's weird because it wasn't a hail mary. It was it was an you know no. it was a little out pattern. Maybe he get out of bounds before the clock ran out, although realistically he couldn't. And 
it wasn't anything. It just, it was just such a strange play. And I don't, I don't understand why, I don't understand why you don't wrap up. I, I just, I don't understand. I, it was such a, it was, it was bizarre. Anyway, let's, we got to move on to Jags. Well, actually, before we move on to Jags Steelers, just to emphasize your point, by the way, I'm on board for this After Dark channel. And furthermore, <laughs> I think it's going to be great. And it's not just the broadcasters. Like, there's now this whole cottage industry of people watching stuff. My former boss was a guy named Chris Hardwick, who I worked with at Nerdist, and he sure. has a bunch of shows. And he would have after shows for The Walking Dead or Breaking Bad or whatever. And so you'd have, you know, actors or comedians or whatever come on who are not act- – they're not involved with the show, but they're just super fans. So I'm just imagining if it was an NFL game – I don't know. Jamie Foxx comes on. He just says the craziest things. I'm like, oh my god, did you see the Diggs thing or whatever? And he does, he's not breaking down X's or O's or whatever, but you're getting into it. And I feel like this has legs, and I and I wonder how this is going to go with the second screen effect. I, I, it's the same kind of thing as why it is that I do what I do, or how did Bill Simmons become known in this industry? Yep. Because all of a sudden, expertise absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. But if you have a good take. As long as you could back it up with something that's going to play too. It's just that it seems like TV is the last frontier for that. The TV still, you got somebody who went to Syracuse and you've got somebody who was a quarterback for 15 years. And that's still pretty much the formula. Uh, although we're going to get into Nets games, which is a little bit of a different formula as far as your color uh, commentator goes. But we're still mostly there. So what might nudge it to, to become something that's not that, I guess? Yeah, well, two schools of thought yeah. hit me on that. First of all, uh, I think we now have a generation of viewers that can multitask. It used to be you needed to focus on the screen. You tell everyone to be quiet in the room because I've got to focus on this. Now we've got young people that are accustomed to having multi-screens when they watch a sporting event to the point, not just accustomed, they expect it. They they want to have two or three things happening. They're checking their fantasy numbers. They're looking at other scores. They're watching the game that's being beamed in their area. Or just by nature, the Red Zone channel is taking you from place to place to place to place. And you're not watching the game in, in the traditional manner. The second part, and this is not an area of an expertise for me, but I know it exists, and I'm familiar familiar with it on the periphery. Yeah. I've done voice work for video games. I did a Sony series for many, many years, and uh, recently did a video game, an NBA video game nice. as well. And, Jonah, the gaming industry has exploded beyond belief. Oh, and yeah. when I stumble upon these channels where there are commentators doing the play-by-play and analysis of action from a video game. There are gamers that have their headset on Mm -hmm. and giving you a play-by-play as they go through every move. That's a real world. That's an ecosystem that exists. So there could come a time where the, the general sports world marries with this gaming mentality that creates a whole other channel for, for viewers. And it's probably similar to what, what you just laid out. Yeah, no question. Twitch is, you know, probably the industry leader there and you're seeing esports absolutely explode. So yeah, it is very interesting. It feels like, you know, who, maybe whoever comes out of Syracuse now, maybe that's their platform. I have a friend yep. named, uh, Ariel Helwani who's big in MMA. He actually also went to Syracuse and, uh, he, that wasn't a thing then. You know, he's in his mid thirties, I guess. And he comes into college 17 years ago and he's just looking for a niche. He grew up like me, a big Montreal Expos fan. He tried to figure out what he wanted to do and he's like, all right, we got, you know, Vince Colley and Bob Costas and stuff on baseball. That's not going to work. Basketball, that's not going to work. Hockey, well, I grew up in Montreal. That's saturated. I'd go in that direction. So, yeah, you know, the idea of, of broadcasting 
different things and looking for different angles is pretty interesting. And uh, again, segues are typical for my podcast, and we still haven't get to, gotten to what I said I would lead with. But you uh, have for many years hosted a sports broadcasting camp. Does that come up for you? Are you doing real meat and potatoes? Like, all right, here's how you set up the shot. Here's how you def- you know go over to your announcer or whatever. Or do these things come up about modern ideas and different ways to call a game and different ways to look at a game? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think there's been an evolution. I did it for 15 years. Yeah. And when we started the camp, Jonah, cell phones were really not part of the deal. They didn't have cameras on them. They weren't producing information for the kids. <coughs> so the kids were even locked in to what you were saying every single second. And they were hanging on every single word. And as the years went by and as the information age truly hit and the fact that you had that information at your fingertips, things change. Even the dynamic in the room of talking to 50 or 55, 14, 15, 16-year-olds about the broadcasting industry. Yeah, Yeah, I I have seen a change. And I do think there's a lot more confidence for young people that they can do this. Uh, I, I graduated Syracuse 1990. I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do when I was young, that I wanted to go into this industry. I didn't know in in what way I would tackle it, but I knew it was something that I wanted to do. And most people at that point, and this is still mid-80s into late-80s, the first reaction uh, certainly from from adults was, really, you're going to do that? That's a career? <laughs> you, you really think that's possible? Yeah. And now – that's not even close to the reaction. The reaction is, oh, yeah, yeah, my uh, 13-year-old son has a podcast and he has hmm. uh, a video companion that he has on YouTube and he's been doing it for three years. Hmm. Th- this is very common now for young people to believe that they can do this. The lines have blurred where when you were growing up and I was growing up, you'd look at somebody on television and say, wow, how do you get there? How yeah. does that happen? How can you make this an actual career for yourself? I don't think young people see it that way. So that's why you have all these new, exciting ways in which to produce content. And you're right. Uh, there are people at Syracuse right now and at Northwestern and at Missouri and at University of Miami and Maryland and USC and schools that I haven't even heard of mm-hmm. that are conjuring up ideas to go at this from a completely different angle and provide a, a new way for us to view the business. Uh, I usually do at the end, at the end of every show, I ask the guests for uh, a tip of some kind. I was about to ask you for some broadcasting. Like, what are you telling the kids? We'll save that for later. We'll just do that at the end. And we will move on to uh, this Jags Steelers game in particular. Obviously one game. By the time this comes out, this will be Wednesday. So we'll be a few days removed from it. Uh, but the NFL playoffs are just such a funny thing because you know, football is a shorter season. It's true. It's not like you're encapsulating an entire, like in baseball, you can have a wild card game. It's one and that decides the whole thing after 162. Right. Football, the ratio is not that far off, but it is the case that crazy things can happen in one football game as surely as they can in March Madness or anything else. And this was crazy. You know, the Jags were a bad team last year. They were a good team this year that annihilated the Steelers earlier in the season. But, you know, Vegas and, and so forth, they were marking them down about seven and a half out and, it didn't look like it. Pittsburgh, you're going into that stadium. This is a battle-tested team or whatever. And I think that we get caught up in that stuff. You know, we start looking for that. And if you look at the results, except for Brady and the Pats, you know, the Falcons lost that game. Uh, and and uh, and you had uh, the Vikings team that won. And, you know, Drew Brees goes down and Matt Ryan goes down. Yep. And it, it was an interesting kind of weekend. So are, are we – can we draw any vast conclusions about three – 
quarterbacks that had, what, one game combined of playoff experience uh, coming into this season? Or is it just, you know, and maybe the book Vegas overrates this stuff? Or is it just, yeah, weird things happened last weekend? Well, I think it's been such a topsy-turvy year Mm -hmm. that I must say that I'm not completely shocked by anything at this stage of the game with the NFL. Look, I break down the numbers because numbers do play a role in, in broadcast. Not not everything stands alone and resonates with an audience, and you have to sift through things that make sense and that are relative and, and are rational. But the one thing that stood out to me, Jacksonville, the five previous seasons leading up to this one, they had the worst record in the NFL. They were 17 and 63. So this was not a case of, oh, they just went through a, a little rough patch. No. They tried something with Gus Bradley. It didn't work. He's an excellent coach. He's a terrific guy. And it just never took hold. His approach, his style, and maybe he gets another chance to be a head coach down the road. Uh, That very well could happen. But his initial pass at it, combined with the decision-making of Dave Caldwell, the GM, it didn't work. Tom Coughlin comes in, and everybody talks about changing the culture. That's such a a buzz term now in all sports. He actually did it. His no nonsense approach, the way that he views football, the way that he views running a program, the choice he made, who was already there on the staff, Doug Marone fit with his mentality. Mm -hmm. And Doug was also at a stage of his career where he was open to maybe changing from his first go around with Buffalo. Here's his second chance at being a head coach in the NFL. I just think it was a really good fit for those two. They had the right personnel to back them up. They hit home runs in free agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, completely knocked it out of the park. When you sign Calais Campbell, A.J. Boyer, and Barry Church, and all three of them play such an integral role in that defense, that means you have nailed it. Their drafts have been very good, and they've had some bad luck through the years, but it all came together this year on defense with Jalen Ramsey from the 2016 draft, on offense this year with Leonard Fournette. With all of that said, I think we still come up with convenient narratives after the fact. The reality is Jacksonville was really confident because Mm -hmm. of what they did early in the season against Pittsburgh, and nobody believed in their confidence. They just assumed, no, that was an anomaly. That was early. Steelers were were trying to work through their issues. Their offense is now in gear. They got Antonio Brown back. Uh, They led the NFL in sacks. They'll get enough pressure, and Blake Bortles won't be able to handle the angst and the stress. Well, none of that came to fruition. Everything that Jacksonville felt when we sat down with them in the meetings that we do on Saturday, you meet with the road team on Saturday for a Sunday game, everything they said rang true. All of their beliefs in this game, the fact that they could match Pittsburgh physically, the fact that they believed in Bortles, they knew they could run the football on this Steeler defense, and they knew they could score. Even though they were coming off a 10-point game against Buffalo, they had confidence that they could get into a high-scoring game and still win in Pittsburgh. I don't know if I believed it. I walked away from our meetings thinking, no, I think Pittsburgh has got the right handle on this and Mike Tomlin has the finger on the pulse and and this team will respond they had a week off they're ready for this they weren't they came out flat as a pancake and they never truly recovered in that game hmm. yeah uh, former guest on this show Tony Khan senior vice president of football technology and analytics 
friend of mine, very excited for him. His awkward dance after the Jags beat the Bills was uh, incredible. <laughs> now they've rolled over the Steelers. I mean, if they beat the Pats, I don't know. This guy might have an out-of-body experience. So it's very cool. Uh, yeah, very, very excited for him. And, and speaking of uh, former guests, too, it's interesting about Bortles, uh, another former guest of the show, Bill Barnwell, former colleague at Grantland as well. He's one of the best football writers out, maybe the best football writer out there. Wrote a great piece, and he was talking about the, you know, the unlikely quarterback results. And that Bortles had shown this, that even though Bortles has had all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems in the NFL, was it week 13 to 15, roughly? He ran roughshod over the league. Now, granted, it's three weeks, but he was really good. And then right at the end, suddenly he was back to Bortlesing. And so people said, okay, Bortles is Bortles. But they laid a 45 spot on him, and you take away the defensive touchdown. They still scored. I mean, the defense is as good as it was. That Jags-Bills game, it's not just that the Jags beat the Steelers. It's that the Jags were playing 1922 football the week before. They won. And then you figured that was not going to work. And I mean, Fournette ran wild. They, they moved the ball. It, it was just, the NFL is unpredictable. It, it just, it does seem to be that way. And the fact that, you know, Brady and the Pats keep doing it year after year after year, that's the anomaly of anomalies because everything else seems to change except yeah. that. You, week to week, you would have more, half to half. A quarterback can just be totally different. And Bortles certainly was. Yeah. And, and I think back to the Buffalo Jacksonville game. I did that game on radio yep. and you're right. It was that old school feel, but it was also to me from viewing it out of the broadcast booth, Blake Bortles had the point pounded into his head. Do not make a colossal mistake. Mm. Do not turn the ball over. And he was tentative. And there were moments where he obviously made plays with his legs, but he wasn't willing to take chances downfield. The game plan the formula was, hey, if we have to win a 10-3 slugfest, so be it. It doesn't have to be a work of art. Survive in advance, and then we'll have a different formula for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think, just judging off our conversation with him and watching him this week compared to the previous week in the wildcard round, I think he did exhale a little bit, whether he would acknowledge it or not. I think there was just this, this human reaction of, okay, we got that out of the way. Jacksonville got a win. He did it at home. The fans walked out of there happy. And no matter what happens against the Steelers, this season will be considered a success. And while it should have still been considered a success if they lost to Buffalo in the wildcard round, there would have been a faction of the fan base that would have reversed it and would have felt that the team's in the same spot that they were in. They still need a quarterback. And look, Jonah, they might still need a quarterback. They have to make a $19.1 million decision for next year. I don't know what Tom Coughlin's thought process is, and he doesn't have to make that call today. Bigger picture, when they analyze what they have on offense, they may go in a different direction. But for Blake Bortles, it was really important, almost imperative for him to get it done the way that he did. And he was poised down the stretch. This was not the defense willing the team to victory, which had happened in previous weeks. This was Blake Bortles making the necessary plays and the necessary throws in clutch situations to seal the victory. I I thought, I thought it was a fantastic performance for him individually. And then you just look at their team, every bit of who they are revealed itself over the course of that game in different spots. And, and that shows a lot about uh, how, how big of a turnaround they've made in, in a short period of time. Hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because we're sitting here talking about all this stuff. This is not even your primary job. You are the lead broadcaster for the, for the Nets. You have been that way for so long now. And I find this very interesting because m- many of my favorite broadcasters, and I put you in that category, but Dan Shulman, 
uh, Bugshiambi, Sean McDonough, guys like that. They've done multiple sports. I particularly like that kind of baseball bats just because baseball and basketball are my two favorite sports that let's go to basketball in the winter and baseball in the summer. But my God, you're all over the place. And, and I think back to, uh, your own resume and it's, you know, it was football and basketball and even lacrosse, which is huge at Syracuse back then. And then gosh, name a sport and you've probably done it at some point. Was that a necessary career thing where you just said, I'm going to make myself as versatile as possible and I dare you guys not to hire me? Or do you just really enjoy the idea of, I don't know what I'm going to be doing next week and I'm totally cool with that. And I'm going to give you Bortles' cap hit and then I'm going to come back and give you Spencer Dignity's story from fourth grade about the time that he dropped the milk in the lunchroom or whatever. Yeah, it's probably more the former, yeah. but it's turned into the latter as okay. the years have gone by. I think initially when I entered the business, I was open to anything. Yeah. I started in sports radio. I was producing the 7 to Midnight show for Howie Rose sure. at WFAN Radio. Yeah. I had interned there as a college student, so it was like going home. And sports radio had just started to really take hold. This was the third year of the radio station's existence. And now they were popping up in Philly and LA. And uh, you just saw that this was going to happen. This was real. A proliferation of stations were, were uh, (laughs) starting to take form around the country. So for me, the initial thought was, Hey, if somebody wants to hire me, I'm, I'm in Uh, my dream as a kid was to be a play by play guy for the New York Mets. I love the Mets. That's the team I grew up rooting for. Bob Murphy was the play-by-play man, and I was one of those very stereotypical kids that had the transistor radio and uh, would keep it by the bed and would fall asleep, and sometimes uh, the game would still be on, or it would be other programming that would continue into the night with me sleeping and waking up in the morning. The, The fact of the matter was I didn't think of going to a small market. I had a chance to go to my hometown in New York and the idea of going to Billings, Montana, which I'm sure is a fine town, Mm -hmm. but was not appealing at that age and at that time. So I started in New York and broke through, got some opportunities on the air, eventually got some chances with play by play, getting the Nets job at uh, 25 on the radio side, and, and you alluded to the numbers earlier, it, it, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around. This is the 24th year that wow. I've been working on next, next broadcast in some capacity. So I'm um, turning 49 next month. Uh, we're talking about nearly half my life has been spent broadcasting first New Jersey Nets games and now Brooklyn Nets games. But versatility was always a big key for me. I just didn't want to say no. I wanted to say yes. I, if somebody called, I didn't want to react with, well, I don't really do that. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to open up all the possibilities. So if somebody called and said, Hey, we've got a boxing event for you. Yeah. Great. Uh, if somebody called and said, we've got a track and field event for you. Super tennis. Let's go golf. I'm all for it. That, that was my mentality. And it served me well because it's put me in positions that might be out of my comfort zone, but I figure it out. You, You have to be a quick study in this business, and you have to immerse yourself. That was the other part. I didn't just go in and say, all right, let me just wing it. Let's see how we do here. That's that's never going to fly. The audience now is is so advanced that you will be uh, completely exposed within the first minute of being on the air. If your vernacular isn't correct, if your glossary of terms Mm -hmm. are a bit off, if your pacing if uh, you're talking too much, if you're talking too little, all of this will will be open for discussion, as we know, in, in the world that we live in now. 
And there's no running away and hiding. It's it's out there for public consumption. So uh, you better be prepared. You better know your stuff, and you you better you better be real. It, it, a bit of you has to come through on the air because I think people pick up on that as well. If you're trying to play the role of a broadcaster, uh, that's going to get tired hmm. very, very quickly. All right. So I'm looking, I'm on the Nets page on uh, basketball reference right now. And, and there's so many ways that we could do this to talk about 24 years. But I think one way in is just to go through the coaches. Cause my God, this is wow. What a list of coaches this. And I said, like, I mean, <laughs> I'm talking like really esteemed championship winning coaches. I'm talking about That's guys right. who are NBA legends. I'm talking about guys who all over the place. You've got everything. So this, I'm just going to literally read. And if I'm not mistaken, you came in just after Chuck Daly, right? I did. But you know what? What's an interesting point yes. because I went in to do an interview with Chuck the year before that. Before I got the job, I okay. was doing a little bit of reporting here and there for FAN and I was assigned a net game and Derek Coleman had missed a practice. Mm-hmm. And that was the big topic of conversation. And I, I had a one-on-one with Chuck, and I told him ahead of time, hey, look, uh, i, I got to ask you some tough questions here. Mm-hmm. And he said something that sticks with me today mm. and should be up on boards for coaching clinics and GM discussions and panel discussions. And it's a very simple statement. He said, uh, don't worry about it. There's no such thing as a tough question. Only tough answers. Oh. Anything you want to ask me, you ask. And I realized he's 100% correct. I can ask anything. It's how you want to shape it and how you want to handle it. Chuck was so masterful in those moments, and he was very good with the media. He had done some broadcasting. But he was very comfortable in front of a microphone. But it just it typified to me the way that every uh, one in that part of the business should should view it. It It is a tough answer. How do you want to answer it? And he answered it the way that he wanted to, and we moved on to other subjects. Hmm. So after – and Daly, by the way, spoken of very highly throughout the industry, uh, no doubt. So th- this is a list of coaches who followed Daly. And, and I'll read them all, and then we can go back and you know pick out some, some choice ones or some choice moments. Uh, but we got Butch Beard, John yep. Calipari. That's something we can definitely get into. Don Casey, Byron Scott. Lawrence Frank, uh, Kiki Vandaway managed for most, or sorry, managed, coached for most of one season, Avery Johnson, PJ Carlesimo briefly, Jason Kidd, Lionel Hollins, Tony Brown, and Kenny Atkinson. That is, first of all, if you're building a starting five, give me Hollins and Kidd in the backcourt with Scott. You can go three, three guards here. I guess this is guard heavy. That's the only problem. Vandaway's gonna have to play five. He's gonna be very yeah. undersized, but he, he can play. Uh, yeah, that, that's a fun team. That, that's an interesting team and certainly a, uh, an eclectic and different kind of set of personalities. Anywhere you want to go with this, your favorite Byron Scott moment that time that Avery Johnson and you got locked in a, an elevator. I mean, there's <laughs> going to be there's going to be years and years of, of fun memories and what have you. But just and you could do this exercise, by the way. If I did it for the Atlanta Hawks or the Utah Jazz, I'm sure. Well, maybe not the Jazz because they had Sloan forever. But you you could just get into this stuff. I find this very interesting with the Nets, though, because like you know, Calipari, like that was his dip into the NBA. Then he came back. Scott, of course, went on to other stuff. You had that really successful period, which was under Scott when they suddenly became really good again. Uh, you know, right when, when you came in, it was right after dailies and then they had a lull. There's all, so many ways where we can go. Is there, you know, is there one era that you're nostalgic for or one moment or two moments? I mean, I, I'm literally opening the floor to you for almost anything you want here. 
Well, the one that, that strikes me more than anything else, uh, just because of the sheer craziness of the time period, was Calipari. Yeah. Uh, he took over at a time where the Nets were desperate for attention. They had courted Rick Pitino yeah. and didn't get him. And Calipari was a little bit of the consolation prize, but they still felt good about it. There were tense negotiations literally going on until the press conference. So they had called the press conference, and I don't think the signature was on the contract yet. Hmm. And then it went a little bit haywire. And then there were rumors (laughs) that maybe it wasn't going to happen. And then they realized that they would be completely embarrassed if it didn't happen. So Calipari got a little bit extra, whether it was financial or control or whatever it was. There were some things that came right down to the wire. And keep in mind, 96, that is when Kobe Bryant was coming out of high school directly to the NBA, and they had scouted him. They had worked him out. Mm -hmm. They believed in him. John Nash, the GM of the team, uh, believed that was the right pick. Calipari believed it was the right pick. And then uh, Arne Tellum got in there and changed history because Mm. I think the Nets were going to take him, and they got spooked and realized that it was going to be embarrassing. And John Calipari's first move as an NBA decision maker was going to be mocked because if Kobe Bryant went to play in Italy instead of coming to the NBA and play for the Nets, uh, who would have ever wanted to play for Calipari or the Nets after that? So he took the safe pick, Kerry Kittles, who turned into uh, an outstanding pro. For sure he was, yeah. Not not a Hall of Famer, not a consistent all-star, but Mm. a player that you could – go to the NBA finals with and back-to-back years and feel comfortable as you're starting two guard. Mm-hmm. But he, but he wasn't Kobe Bryant. So uh, that, that pretty much sets the tone for what happened after that. They, they built a team and they actually had a pretty good run. And then the lockout happened and Sam Cassell injured himself. The first game of the lockout shortened season. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, Kendall Gill and Steve Smith, two of the nicer guys. Gill eventually went into boxing. Steve Smith is one of the nicest human beings you will ever meet. And Kendall's a great guy. Yep. But they got into it to the point where they were going to fight after the game. They were playing (laughs) at the Dome because they were redoing the arena. Oh, wow. I remember this uh, quite vividly. And the Nets never recovered. And Calipari got fired that year. He got fired. When the team was in Miami, uh, then flew to Toronto. The players didn't even know Calipari had been fired. That's that's how the bottom dropped out on that situation. So, uh, unfortunately for Cal, it's not fond memories. And to this day, to this day, all these years later, if I get a Kentucky game and I see Calipari at practice the day before or the day of the game, the first thing he'll say is, can you believe it? I am the, They fired me. They, they fired me in New Jersey. I go, yeah, <laughs> they did. You know, I had nothing to do with that, John, right? We just, just to make sure. You know? So it's still something that irks him because he's just not a guy that's accustomed to failure in any form. Yeah, no question about it. And, and you know, you, you'll see that occasion where guys will make that jump and for whatever reason it doesn't work. And it might have to do with the talent, too. It might not be anything to do with coaching, but uh, – you know, it's interesting to have gone in that direction. I'm again on the same basketball reference page. I'm looking at the top win shares guys for each year uh, since you took over, and right after Derek Coleman, you go Kenny Anderson, Armand Gilliam, pride of UNLV, Kendall Gill, Kerry Ken- Kittles, Marbury Kid, Jefferson Carter, Jefferson Carter, Lopez, Chris Humphreys, 
Darren Williams, Lopez, and Dinwiddie. That's a group too. I mean, that's and it, it sort of it speaks to the evolution of the NBA. You know, I'm, I'm closing my eyes and I'm picturing the freewheeling '90s. You know, the Iverson era and guys like Kenny Anderson and Derek Coleman, and it was considered by some to be oh well, it was a more selfish area of basketball or whatever. But that's kind of when I came of age. I mean, I was Bird of Magic and Jordan for me, but then like '90s. I'm born in '74, so I'm those early '90s memories are right there with me. Sure, all that stuff, and it, it's, it, these are some fascinating clubs. And there were a lot of, you know, runs, you know, a lot of conference semis, two lost finals in a row. Maybe that's the place to jump to, I guess, here is to talk about the those two Scott years under and Jake Kidd being so, so good. Because it seems like the Nets have put together some really good teams, but whatever. One ingredient was missing or they didn't, or maybe they just ran into a better team, what have you. Because it's not like this team has not been successful. I don't think the Nets necessarily have the most stellar reputation, obviously because of the lack of titles. But we're talking about some pretty significant playoff runs, particularly in that, what, like 01 to 07 run. Yep. That's six in a row when they made the playoffs. Kid changed everything. Yeah. Uh, it's it's as simple as that. And I, I didn't realize at that point, because I had just never seen it up close and personal, how much one player could affect the entire organization. So at that point, I had had the job for uh, about eight years. Mm-hmm. And the team had very little success. They had the one playoff jump with Calipari where Sam Cassell and Kendall Gill and Keith Van Horn and Jason Williams came together. And they they were a solid eight seed that year. They lost to the Bulls. It was still two out of three. Uh, They actually should have won game one. They blew it. Game two was tight. And then they got uh, handled in game three on their home floor. And it was a sweep. But you felt as if there was progress being made. Then everything fell apart, and they were trying to pick up the pieces. Rod Thorne comes in, and he masterfully makes this move with the Phoenix Suns. He trades Stephon Marbury for Jason Kidd. And I think to myself, yeah, I've seen Kidd, of course. Uh, I know uh, his fingerprints are all over the game. He fills up a box score. I didn't know that he was going to be on a complete revenge tour at that point. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's really what it was. (coughs) He was coming off a a personal issue in Phoenix, which, uh, you know, was unfortunate. And uh, he had a problem with with his wife. He hit his wife. Uh, They remained married. And she came to New Jersey with him and the family and was very interested in getting involved in media and promoting herself. And Jason came in with a chip on his shoulder. It was as if he got sent to Siberia and he was going to prove to everybody that he could make something of this. And every time he took the court that year in the first year, and nobody thought they were going to be very good. Everyone thought if they could be a 500 team, that would be a huge accomplishment. Well, they set a franchise record for wins. They finished with the best record in the Eastern Conference. They have a classic five-game series against Indiana in round one. They survive it in double overtime in the fifth and final game. And then they just keep humming along until they meet the Lakers in the NBA finals. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the clock struck midnight at that point, and, and they just couldn't quite compete with that team, couldn't handle Shaq. And they go down in a sweep. Yeah. Uh, Game one of that series is out in L.A., and I'm out there, and we end up – well, two things happen. One, Todd McCullough was playing for the Nets at that point, oh, and sure. what what a 
great human being, just cool. one of the n- nicest people that you'll meet. Canadian guy, of course, obviously. So uh, he had seen Bill Raftery uh, earlier in the day, and I'm working with Bill, and Bill is is like America's host. Yeah, uh, you you meet Bill, and Bill now is a friend. That's just <laughs> how it works, which is a wonderful quality. Yeah, and he says to Todd. He says, uh, oh, you, you should join us for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so Todd says, oh, that'd be great. Yeah. He says, that'd be great. He says, hey, call Bird. So that that's me. I'm yes, Bird. Yeah, right. So my phone rings in, in the room. This is, again, uh, 02. So cell phone's not, not as big a deal at that point. Yeah. The phone actually rings in the room. Mm-hmm. And I pick up the phone. Hello? Hey, uh, it's uh, T-Mac. I'm like, T-Mac? Who? Oh. Tracy McGrady. <laughs> he says, "Hey, it's T Mac. Uh, I saw I saw Bill Raftery in the lobby. What time are you guys meeting for dinner?" And I don't know if this is like a crazed fan. I have no idea. It's the night before Game One. I said, "Excuse me." He goes, "It's T Mac. I, I saw Bill in the lobby. What time are you guys meeting for dinner?" I said, "Oh, seven thirty. He goes, "All right. I'll see you down there." I hang up the phone. I have no idea who it is. Todd McCullough has never been called T-Mac in his life. I've never heard that. So we go downstairs, and I see Bill first. And uh, I said, hey, uh, we're going to go to that Italian joint. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now Todd McCullough walks over. I go, hey, what's up, Todd? He goes, "Uh, why are you so weird on the phone? I said, what? I said, was that you? So I explained that I had no idea it was him. He now brings his dad with him, and he comes out to dinner with us the night before he's going to play Shaquille O'Neal wow. in, in game one of the NBA Finals. Wow. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, really? And he fe- it looks like he has no stress whatsoever. Mm-hmm. He's having a good time. He's hanging out. We're having an Italian meal. And his dad, who's also a large man, yeah. turns to me about 20 minutes into the meal and says, uh, hey, uh, I have a bone to pick with you. <laughs> okay. I said, Really? <laughs> He said, you've been, uh, you've been mispronouncing our name the whole year. I said, are you serious? What, what is it? He says, it's McCulloch. Oh. I, I said, your name is McCulloch? He said, yeah. And I turned to Todd. I said, I said, no disrespect, Mr. McCulloch. I went to your son before the season and asked him how to pronounce his name. And he told me it's McCulloch. Mm-hmm. And his dad said, well, he doesn't know. <laughs> Canadians, <laughs> so, man. Yeah, Canadians are different. I know, Jonah. I, I figure it out. Uh, basically, we still call him McCullough because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna change it at that stage of right. the game. And I, in I, the I NBA finals, right? Yeah, the NBA finals, and then McCullough or McCulloch, either way you want to say it, gets crushed by Shaq. Right. 24 hours later. It right. didn't matter how I was going to say the name at that point. It was going to be a mismatch. And we knew at that point that the Nets really had no chance yeah. of winning this series. Yeah, I don't. I feel like that's a lot of pressure on you, too. Like, you're monitoring the poor guy's Chianti levels. To me. Hey, you better take it easy, buddy. <laughs> See, you're going to get to get Shaq. Watch out. Maybe, maybe skip the cannoli. I don't know. Like, yeah. There's exactly. all that. Um, so I want to talk about the uh, the present day and, and where the Nets stand. And, you know, it's an interesting – first of all, we're changing eras uh, in some ways because uh, the team is uh, – actually, where are we in the process of the ownership shift? I guess it's ongoing this season, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, Prokhorov yep. is on his way out. That was an interesting era too. And and here's a guy who – you know, there have been bombastic owners. I mean, Mark, obviously Mark Cuban. There have been 
interesting, charismatic, different kind of owners. But but Prokhorov came in and wasn't you know a super successful era. There were there were moments certainly during the era, but you know some struggles. But uh, you know what do you make of it in, in kind of the in kind of the after the fact? Here's a guy who really had big ambitions. I mean, this was I guess every owner wants to win an NBA title or whatever, but. He really seemed to be spending money and going after things and trying his best to get it done in a very unorthodox way. The source of his wealth was very different. This was just not your normal guy. This water skiing, uh, you know, really, uh, whatever you want to say, charismatic kind of guy, but also a little bit of a mysterious guy. And, in, you know, you look at some of the players that have come through these last few years. Brooke Lopez is a great player. Darren Williams is a great player. But it almost feels like Prokhorov, more than anybody, was the avatar for the franchise, which it can be good, it can be bad. It depends. It's hard to say. But, uh, yeah, just sort of a different kind of era in sports, I suppose, and maybe different for the Nets, too. Yeah, I looked back at, at that time, and I really think, for a stretch, he was the world's most interesting man. Yeah. You just yeah. – you just didn't know that much. You got what little bits of information he would give. 60 Minutes did a story. It yep. was very intriguing. But I found with with Mikhail that uh, he would answer questions, but he would do it with almost a little gleam in his eye, a little wink-wink that, yeah. that he knows that he's got – more money than he'll ever know what to do with mm-hmm. and that this is a fun little way to get some validation in the United States. Nobody knew who he was before this. So in my mind, mission accomplished. He became someone that we now were aware of. There are a lot of wealthy people around the world. Uh, he was one that actually got into the U.S., got into the sports scene, became an NBA owner and people were curious about him, and maybe that helped him in other business ventures. Uh, I do think that his group has seen a broader picture with not just sports but entertainment yes. in opening up a venue out on Long Island, reopening it, the Coliseum, uh, making the Barclays Center a viable place for big events. And he is a businessman. The sports end of it, which he came in full guns ablazing. I believe they felt that that they were going to go for broke. And yeah. in the NBA, as we've learned, that's not very easy to do. <laughs> it's just it's not that simple. Uh, there are tools set up that usually restrict that, because if you trade away your assets, which the Nets did, it can affect you for many years to come. And, and that's what we've seen with this organization. Sean Marks has come in clear philosophy of uh, trying to discover young talent, trying to create a environment that people around the league respect. And when I say people, I don't mean just players. You have to convince agents. You have to convince the NBA community that this is a viable structure moving forward that you've got the basis of something to build on and not just, yeah, we're just going to try to make as many deals as possible. No, it it doesn't work that way. They've been uh, very selective in how they go about their business, who they bring in. And I know from a fan standpoint, more often than not, this doesn't matter because they don't, they don't see the behind the scenes. They go, I don't care if he's a good guy or not. Can he play? Yeah. Well, they care. They actually care as a quality individual. They care 
if it's someone that they can consider part of the fabric of what they're doing. They don't just want to haphazardly make moves for talented players that may not uh, be a part of what they envision moving forward. This isn't plug the hole or put a Band-Aid over it. Uh, He's trying to create something long-term, and I give him and and his staff a lot of credit uh, for the way that they're going about their business. It, It was probably the biggest challenge that a GM has ever faced in NBA history, considering the amount of draft picks, high draft picks that were traded away in their various deals and the fact that they had to find a new way to go about how they conducted their business. And so far, so good. I've seen improvement. I feel like even the perception around the league is changing a bit. And that was a big step in in trying to adjust the way that they're viewed by their peers. It's interesting, too, because it feels like the NBA, more than any other sport, the players control their destiny. And they kind of, you know, there's the whole banana boat discussion about maybe D-Wade and Melo and LeBron and mm-hmm. Paul are all going to play together. And, all right, uh, you know, where can Paul George go? Well, he'll go to OKC, which is not a hopping town compared to, not, no disrespect to OKC, but it's not L.A., it's not New York, whatever. And from the outside, if you're 23 years old and really talented, my God. Play in Brooklyn, you know, make serious money, live in New York. That, that's amazing. And the net, the Knicks have been have struggled for quite a few years. But it feels like they still have that sheen. It feels like that when people discuss, well, where might LeBron go next that New York will get mentioned? Or where might so-and-so that that happens? Shouldn't Brooklyn get there or even be there at some point <clears throat> soon, too? Because, yes, this was the New Jersey Nets. Yes, the New Jersey Nets don't have the pageantry of the Celtics or wherever. But it's still New York City. It's still a beautiful arena. It seems like there should be factors which could hasten a rebuilding process because, yes, you need to get talent there. Fundamentally, you have to draft well and all that stuff. But then if you can even get that going a little bit, it's like, yeah, then go play in New York and become rich and famous and maybe win a title in New York as opposed to, again, no disrespect anywhere else, but it's in New York. Yeah, I think some things have changed through the years, uh, Jonah. Uh, There's no doubt in the NBA because of the way that the finances have been set up. You can become a very rich man playing in any market. Yes. So the financial part of it uh, is is no longer a draw. It used to be, well, you got to go to a big market because then you would get the the big money and endorsements. Yeah. No, not not necessarily. If you're Russell Westbrook, Westbrook yeah, yeah. there are plenty of plenty of companies want to be associated with you, no matter yeah. where you hang your hat at the end of the day. I also think that it is a recruiting process more than ever. Uh, college, hmm. we know that's always been a big part of it. NBA, not just a player recruiting another player, but I think your practice facility, your living arrangements, your family, uh, all of these things now factor in more so than ever before. It used to just be, hey, we're going to pay you a whole lot of money. You do whatever you want with it. Now it's, we're going to pay you a whole lot of money. And in addition to that, you're going to come to our practice facility And you're going to be able to stay there for the entire day because not only do we have the best equipment available to you, we also have an area for your family if they need it. And we also have an area where you can get the best food and food that has been uh, determined on a menu that is suited for your body. Hmm. And in addition, we have uh, a training staff that is – Uh, looking at your levels at every moment of every day. We have a masseuse that's ready to go at a moment. All of these things now that never were part of the equation 
are now a big part of it. And I think the Nets have looked at that part of of recruiting as a tool that they can excel at. And you're right. There is something about New York and Brooklyn that will appeal to some, not everybody, but will appeal to some. And they've now got to marry the idea of a truly competitive first class basketball player that wants to come to New York and take on everything that the city has to offer in addition to playing at a place that might be considered an up and coming spot. They, they are trying to, to change and alter the way that people have viewed this franchise. And it doesn't happen in a year. It happens over time. And I think players talk. They talk amongst themselves. They talk to each other. They talk to other players on other teams. They connect via their cell phones and social media or through their agents. So it's important that you just not only plant that seed, but you've got to watch it grow over a few years to see whether or not uh, the, the scuttlebutt is truly what they believe it is, that Brooklyn will eventually become a destination. You're right. It seems very <coughs> rational, and mm-hmm. it seems like something – that certain players would view as a big positive in their in their career. Now they gotta they gotta pull the trigger on some of these moves uh, down the road, and it's gonna take a, a big name player to to probably shift the the whole perception of of how the franchise is viewed. You've worked with some great uh, color analysts as well. Raftery is a, a gem. I mean, he's, there's a reason he's so beloved, not only interpersonally, but as an analyst, he's just entertaining and, and informative and so forth. Spinarical for many years in various forms and, and so forth. Your new uh, color commentator, decorated athlete, you know, uh, excelled at DePaul University as a basketball player, really, really good, and, and uh, followed a path in media, a pretty typical path. You are, you are an athlete, and you have some journalism chops. You go along, and you're doing all that, yep. and you go from one job to another, and that's all great and makes sense, except the kicker is that this is a woman, in this case, who is doing this, and that is something that is very, very, very rare. We're still not there. Doris Burke, it's starting. We're seeing some things starting to happen. ESPN has broken through in a couple respects, but to yep. have a team – that you're going to watch 82 games of this team and it's going to be a female voice coming in and offering commentary, it's new and it's different. So what has your experience been uh, working with Sarah and, and, and figuring out the chemistry? Do you find it to be a completely different kind of pairing because of that? Or is it, oh, here's another smart basketball mind and it could as well be, maybe it can't be Raftery because Raftery's Raftery, but it's, it, it feels like anything else. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it on on the second assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe if Sarah had been with another team doing sideline reporting and the Yes Network discovered her and brought her over right. to be the analyst, there would have been that adjustment period of, okay, I, I got to get used to this. I don't know her as a person. I, I don't really know her basketball philosophies. I don't have any real insight into her as a human being. The reality is she worked with Yes for the previous five years. Mm -hmm. And because of that, a friendship developed very quickly and a respect level developed. So when she sat down in that chair just to fill in a couple times, I wanted her to do well because I liked her as a person. But Mm -hmm. I also wanted her to do well because it was the obvious next step for her. It was something that she wanted to pursue And if I could play any role in her being successful, then it wouldn't matter. Even if I didn't 
know her well, whoever sits next to me, I want them to do well. Sure. If they do well, I do well. Yep. I often think you're judged as a team, whether it's conscious or unconscious from from people watching. It's just natural to react. Oh, I like those two. Mm-hmm. Or eh, I don't like those two. It's rare. And I know probably it happens, but I don't see it this way. Like, I like him, but I don't really like him. Yeah. So if I could take him out, but I could. No, people don't <coughs> think of it that way. Yeah. So with Sarah, I wanted her to succeed just because she was a teammate. And then the, the more important part of it was this was something that she really wanted to pursue. She did well in the games that she filled in. Mm-hmm. I don't think in those games, and by her own admission, she would tell you that her true self came through. She was still trying to find that balance of basketball talk and background information uh, that that she would gather as a sideline reporter. And this year, the lines blurred. Once she was given the job to do it on a full-time basis, I think she realized a few games in, I just got to be me yeah. because she can, she can talk ball. This is natural to her. This Mm -hmm. isn't her trying to be a certain way on the air. So people will respect her knowledge. That's not it. Who she is, is coming across now. And I think that's why it's been successful. Uh, She speaks the language. She has lived it. And she has seen it from multiple angles, not only as a media member, but as an assistant coach at DePaul. And that comes through on the air. And her her preparation and her passion for the game come through. Ultimately, I think that's what people want. They want to, why, why has Tony Romo been considered such a big success in his first year at CBS? Mm-hmm. Well, you can hear how much he cares about what he's watching. On a third down and four, he's really into it with the team down by 20 points. The play call, the philosophy, why they did what they did, what they might do on the next play. His mind is is always moving, mm. and I feel that way with Sarah as well. Uh, now she is just talking freely on the air as an analyst and no longer – are you thinking about gender? You're just listening to two people who really like basketball talk hoops. And that's really what what the whole name of the game is. Uh, the whole general feeling is that you hope that someone watching would feel as if they would want to sit down and watch a game with you. And you would have a natural conversation between the people. That's That's how I've always looked at this. Couple more. I want to ask you about uh, Nets broadcast these last. This is the fourth year. I mean, it's it, you know it's, we, we don't know halfway through the season, it's possible when Nets could bounce back. But it feels like it's probably not going to be playoff season. It might be an under five hundred season, uh, which would be f- four in a row. And uh, you know, it's not always easy. Uh, this is the proverbial you know eleven to one Dodgers versus Pirates. You're the bro- Pirates broadcaster. How are you going to carry this game? And, sure. And, and it can be tough. You know, it can be tough when a team is coming off back to back 60 loss seasons. There's no question about it. You need to keep viewers. You know what I mean? It's not, if you, if you don't have guys who are dunking over people in traffic every moment, if you don't have LeBron on your team, you got to figure out a way. And, sure. and, and one of the things that I really like about you, whether it's NFL or basketball or whatever is, uh, you're fun. You know, you, you have that. And with Raffrey, that obviously plays out, but it, it doesn't even matter who it is. And I know that you guys do the who am I every night and you'll have little things where you're just trying to get a little something. So how do you go about that? I, that I feels like that's, that might be a lesson that doesn't get taught necessarily 
in journalism school and you just sort of figure it out because wherever you are, you're going to run into rough patches in a game, in a season or whatever. And if it's a franchise that has a few in a row, you have to figure it out. So, so what do you do to try to keep people engaged, uh, you know, when they're going up against whatever the Warriors and Curry's probably going to score 40 and the Warriors are probably going to run away with it? Yeah, it, it's not it's not contrived. I, I okay. can tell you that. Yeah. So if if you're a broadcaster and off the air, you're not naturally funny. My advice would be don't try to be funny on the air. <laughs> right. So don't don't try to go outside of who you are just because you've got a microphone on you. And I would reverse it. Uh, if if you are someone that brings a, a sense of humor, it's not it's not one of these uh, amateur nights at the Chuckle Hut. You, you can't you can't do that for the entire game or yeah. then your credibility is affected. I remember when I got the job, uh, Pete Silverman, who had hired me and took a chance on me. I had done one year of Nets radio and I got hired the next year to do Nets television. And there were a few people that were up for the job that were legitimate options. And he went with me. And for that, I am forever grateful. I got paired with Bill Raftery, which was probably the best thing to ever happen in my career because mm. you couldn't sit next to Bill and not enjoy it. Uh, even if I was a straight man, it still would have been entertaining because of him. Now, he and I really clicked off the air and that carried over on the air. And I realized that the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. You you can bring that to the broadcast on a daily basis, as long as it's real, as long as it's organic. Bill and I have never once talked before a broadcast of, hey, lead me here and I'll get you there. And if yeah. you get me there, like that, once you get into that territory, it's over. And I'm really fortunate to have that now with Dan Fouts on the football side. Dan mm -hmm. and I just have a wonderful relationship and it's real. And yeah, is there ball busting? Yes, there is. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of it. And you have to know where the limits are on uh, NFL broadcast of what people want to hear. But I think for me, I just always view it, what would I want if I was sitting at home? Would I want a little bit of entertainment? Do I want some analysis? Do I want some background? Do I need information? What do I need in that moment that is going to keep me engaged in the broadcast? And that's true on the Nets broadcast. It's true on a Bengals Ravens broadcast. It's true on UConn Villanova, which I have coming up this weekend for CBS with Bill Raftery. That never changes. So as long as you can maintain that mentality and that MO, I think you can check yourself in those moments. Uh, I'm, I'm constantly asking myself that throughout a broadcast. And if you're an interesting person, that shouldn't change just because the red light goes on. Uh, parts of your personality have to come through. And if you have something of value, then odds are you'll bring that with you when, when you're on the air. If you're a robot, <laughs> if you're in the machine-like mentality as a broadcaster, then and by the way, there are many excellent broadcasters that that's how they approach it. Yep. And it works and it should work. Uh, there's there, there's no right answer. I think it's just a very personal side of this of how much of yourself do you want to reveal and how much does the audience really want? You've got to know where that line is. And once it starts to intrude 
on the enjoyment of the broadcast, that's when you've crossed it. Uh, I never want to get in the way of the action. I just want to compliment it. I want to enhance it. If there's something memorable, something, a line, a phrase, uh, a back and forth in the conversation that that you have at the end of the broadcast that you remember, great. Uh, but by the way, I got to do it again the next night yeah. and the next night and the next night. And so you have to constantly keep that in mind that uh, you need to keep it moving and keep it interesting. Well, I was going to ask you for a piece of advice, but what would I want to hear? It seems like that pretty much sums it up perfectly for a broadcaster, so uh, that'll work. Uh, Ian Eagle, thank you so much for this. It was a pleasure to, uh, I don't know, e-meet you, phone meet you, <laughs> Skype meet you, whatever we call this. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck. And, and truly, I love, as I said, like the renaissance men and women in this industry, it plays, man. Like you just... You could tell the enjoyment coming from every sport. It's just, oh, Brian Kenny's doing baseball and boxing, and he loves both, and Ryan does football and basketball, and he loves both. It really comes across that way, and, and I appreciate your work over the years, and uh, thank you for being you. Yeah, I really appreciate it, John. Great being on with you, and the reality is uh, the same holds true for you. There's a reason why these podcasts are successful, because your passion comes through. And, and the last piece of advice I would give to any Please. young broadcaster would be just that. You have to immerse yourself in whatever it is you decide to do, whatever aspect of this business you decide to pursue. Uh, there's so much information available now. And because of that, there can be information overload. The one part that can't ever go away is someone's uh, real honest to goodness excitement and mm. enthusiasm for what they cover. I think people naturally feel, uh, a draw to that. Uh, that's, that's never gonna, never gonna disappear. So keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's always great hearing you and always great reading your stuff. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you, sir. Thanks, bud. Joan Carey, it's all-